Man, Wolverine's healing factor is way, way out of control. I know, Jay. Recovering if there's even a single cell of him left? Where are the stakes? Actually, I was thinking more about what it could do for other characters. Wait, does it heal other people now too? Like Angel's blood? Uh, not exactly. Then does it harm them? Does Wolverine's blood turn other people into Wolverine? No, but it does make vampires impervious to sunlight. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 442 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to some fun and goofy stories, but first... The news. So we have a couple kind of big things going on. The first regards where you can find us online. Now, if you are a social media aficionado, you may have noticed that we don't really post on Twitter these days. And that is because we are basically phasing out our use of that platform in favor of Blue Sky, uh, which is now no longer invite-only. So if you are online, you can come find us there. Please follow us there or on Tumblr or at the website explainthexmen.com for all of the latest news and announcements, including some of the news that we're going to be talking about in a moment here regarding our upcoming 10th birthday party and our first live show since 2019. Hell yeah. We alluded to this on the podcast in a previous episode, but yeah, we have some more details now. So as we said before, uh, that's going to be on April 13th, 2024, the exact 10-year anniversary of the release of our very first episode. Which by remarkable and providential coincidence happens to be on a Saturday this year. Very handy. We planned it that way from the start. So that morning at 10 a.m., we're going to be doing a live show. It will be free. It will be at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. Hopefully by the time this episode goes up, we'll have a link for RSVPs. Um, We are asking that people RSVP, even though it's not ticketed, just so that we have a sense of of turnout and relative to capacity. And after that, um, there will be a 10th birthday party at the nearby Books with Pictures, our home comic shop. And uh, we would love it if you joined us. Yes. Uh, come hang out, have some pie, dress as your favorite X-Men character, dress as your least favorite X-Men character. You know, whatever. Dress as yourself. Dress however you want. Uh, there will be pie and party favors and fancy new merch, including this. Oh, God, I'm so excited about this. Including a 10th anniversary print by Colleen fucking Coover. Yes, yes, Colleen Coover, infamous for drawing the X-Men First Class backup story where Beast definitively scientifically proves that the cutest baby animals are ducklings. Well, no, later it turns out that uh, otters might be. Oh, that's true. Well, I mean, you know, that's the thing with science is you keep uh, you keep doing experiments and sometimes your uh, results need to be updated. But Colleen is fantastic. Uh, there's some other stuff that we're going to be announcing as it comes up. We are very excited about this. We have a lot of a lot of pots on the stove for the anniversary party and anniversary event, um, hopefully some of which will will spread over to folks even who can't make it. But if you can, we would love, love, love to see you there. Saturday, April 13th, Portland, we will have RSVP links up in the visual companion to this post and also probably independently on the website, and we will be spamming the hell out of both Blue Sky and Tumblr in the weeks leading up. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, in fact, we'll go ahead and put the RSVP link at the very top of the website, so look for that. So, that's coming up, but in the more immediate future, we want to tell you about some X-Men, because that's, that's, that's why we do this podcast. So we're going to keep doing it, right now. Who? X-Men? What? Shit. So the X-Men are now a mix of members old, medium, and new. We've had a team sort of settle in um, between different arcs after after the general breakdown of everything from Onslaught, the exodus of Excalibur. Uh, the longtime members returning to the team are Storm, Wolverine, Rogue, and Gambit. We also have newly returned Excalibur, Expats, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus. And new kid Marrow, a young Morlock woman with a chip on her shoulder. And um, that's really what you need to know right now. Yeah, pretty much, because this episode we're going to be talking about a standalone issue of X-Men Unlimited that takes place right around this time, I think maybe slightly earlier, and an X-Men annual, which is co-headlined by the one, the only, Victor Von Doom. Oh, yeah. So, Jay, which one should we do first? So, the Unlimited story is kind of, is is, is just sort of a brief one-off story. The Doom Annual is a bit of a, I'm not sure if walk is quite the word, hop via time platform down memory lane, and I kind of want to close with that one because of it. Okay, good plan. So, uh, yeah, in that case, let's start with X-Men Unlimited number 22, Cat and Mouse. This is written by Brian K. Vaughn, penciled by Patrick Gleason, inked by Tom Wynn, colored by Matt Webb, and lettered by Comicraft. Brian K. Vaughn. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn wrote the first two volumes of Runaways, a comic I love very much, and some Ultimate X-Men, plus the Cyclops and Chamber miniseries later on, the Mystique ongoing. Uh, those are separate miniseries. There is a Cyclops miniseries and a Chamber miniseries, not a Cyclops and Chamber miniseries. Oh, that would be a really weird buddy cop comic. I haven't read the Chamber miniseries, but the Cyclops one is bad. Which is strange, because overall, I love Brian K. Vaughn's work. I mean, you know, even outside of the Marvel stuff, like, Saga? Saga is incredible. Yeah, no, the Cyclops miniseries feels like, I don't know what the opposite of filing off the serial numbers is, but it feels like an entirely unrelated story um, with, with Cyclops kind of stuck in as the protagonist. Do you remember that one episode of the X-Men animated series? Uh, not the one that's coming back really soon, but the old one, where Cyclops ends up in the desert and meets that Solar guy and who's hanging out with, like, a cult, and it's kind of pointless and weird? Only very vaguely. Yeah, well, that happened. And it was aired way out of order, so even though he was supposed to be mourning Jean at the time, like, it was a totally the wrong time for that. Oops. Anyway, uh, as for the art, Patrick Gleason. So Patrick Gleason has done some Spider-Man, a whole lot of DC work. Uh, so I'm not super familiar with him, but I love the clean style, um, complemented with Wynn's inks. Um, it's just really pleasing to look at. Except then there's Wolverine, who's the most like lined, shadowed dude ever by comparison. As he should be. As he should be. So this issue is entirely from Mero's point of view, which is fun because we've been seeing a lot of Mero through other characters' eyes. And this is the first, well, not the first opportunity we've had in a while because we, we occasionally get glimpses from hers. But this is kind of the first really prolonged look through her perspective that we've gotten. And in fact, it opens with narration from Mero herself. 
The first time I remember seeing what a human looked like was when a paperback romance novel with one of those lurid painted covers floated into the sewers where I lived. That's what she reminds me of. The covers, that is, not the sewers. She's so beautiful. Her chestnut hair always falls perfectly over that flawless complexion. You can't see those roomy hazel eyes now, but she can only hide them for so long. Look at the way those supple red lips stay open just a little when she sleeps. There's no question about it. She deserves this. Uh, the she in question is, as you might guess, Kitty Pride, who's currently asleep. Now, the this that Mero's referring to is a bit more ambiguous and is, is going to be explored more through the story, but in this specific moment refers to being pelted with dead rats. What the hell, Mero? Well, she, she's, she's carefully hand-washed and air-dried them on her line, and now she's got to do something with them. I love the idea that Mero's just a dead rat connoisseur, and actually every time she throws rats at people, it's just a sign of affection, like she's a house cat. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Uh, Kitty, by the way, is wearing, while she's sleeping, um, branded shield boxer shorts and a Dazzler World Tour 1987 shirt, which is kind of funny because 87 was when Dazzler joined the X-Men. And was definitely not going on any world tours. No. I mean, touring the world with the X-Men, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, one of the things I appreciate here, obviously this wakes Kitty up, and she yells, Mero! Like, before she even looks up to see who's above her, because she's like, okay, there's a dead rat in front of me. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, your suspect list, if you're on this iteration of the X-Men, is very short for that. For, for any dead rat-related crimes. <laughs> So that's kind of what this issue is going to be about, not just about Mara's perspective, but specifically about Mara's perspective as seen through her dynamic with Shadowcat. Saying the phrase dead rat related crimes took me in a weird direction. Do you remember the Wayside School books? Oh, yeah. Sideways stories from Wayside School. Yeah. And remember the teacher's least favorite thing was dead rats. And so they were always trying to sneak into her classroom in disguise. Oh, yeah. I guess Mara should have been in that book. Maybe. Anyway, they make some pretense of fighting, but Mero gets Kitty's attention ultimately by listing the folks she's recently encountered in the sewers, namely homeless guys, construction workers, terrorists planting explosives. Yeah, because uh, Mero apparently recently saw a guy in a cape and some dudes in berets loading something that looked like a bomb onto a train. And really, this is just her way of letting the X-Men know, oh, there's this thing that you might want to know about. but. This is so Marrow. That's so Raven. Okay, not Raven. That's Raven Darkholm. That's so Marrow. This is how she, like, gets in touch with anybody in the most aggressive, annoying way possible. Like, she just will not be vulnerable. She has to be a total bag of dicks, or rats, as the case may be, about everything. Cartoonist Kelly Tyndall, who's a lovely human being, by the way, used to have a comic strip called That's So Craven, in which he put uh, Craven the Hunter into uh, That's So Raven plot lines. It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen on the internet. It was really lovely. So Mero, nonetheless, feels like this isn't really the X-Men's problem. I mean, it's just a bunch of humans offing each other, so who cares? And as the other members of the team react, we get her individual read on each member of the team, except for Gambit, because she still doesn't know quite what to make of him, which is a detail I really enjoy, because among other things, it sets up the fact that Gambit kind of interacts differently with her than he does with anyone else. Because, as you may recall, the big dark secret Gambit had been hiding for years that recently came to light 
is that he was semi-indirectly responsible for the mutant massacre. Uh, he helped organize the team that killed, like, hundreds if not thousands of Morlocks years before, including, like, most of the people that Marrow knew when she was a kid. We can extrapolate that Marrow does not yet know this from the fact that Gambit is still alive. Yeah, but he feels so, so guilty about this, and, like, every time he sees Marrow, that guilt just stabs him in the freaking heart. Does Does he know yet that she's the one kid he rescued? Oh, he absolutely does, yeah. He remembers. Okay. So several of the X-Men do not believe Marrow. They think she's just making things up. These are Nightcrawler and Colossus. And I, the latter in particular seems weird to me. Colossus? Yeah, I mean, it's so strange. Like, Colossus is a character that I feel like uh, present-day readers have a really uh, a really good beat on, like, what his personality is like. Um, I mean, there was the whole recent possession-ish thing, but aside from that. But remember, he'd been bounced back and forth from book to book, from team to team, and I think he's sort of in a state of flux at this point, not just in terms of his own personality, but in terms of how different writers are interpreting him. Fair enough. But Storm basically says, look, she's an X-Man, so we're going to listen, we're going to take her seriously. And Storm's approach to Marrow at this point, um, obviously they've, they've had a very, very contentious relationship. Marrow rejects Storm's authority pretty violently, given that Storm, among other things, once ripped out Marrow's heart. J just one of them. She had another. Yeah. Oh, comics. And Storm's approach to Marrow these days is basically treat her as an adult and maybe she'll act like one. Yeah, which is uh, gradually, very gradually, working. Kitty surprisingly agrees with Marrow. There are Avengers and transit cops to deal with things like this. Maybe the X-Men should continue to attempt to get their own shit together. But Wolverine points out that uh, the X-Men don't really have any credibility with uh, Avengers or transit cops these days. I love the idea of like, oh, you know, the, uh, the those two those two important groups, Avengers and transit cops. Yeah, I mean, who else would stand in large, large clusters in every fucking subway station entry just in case some kid, God forbid, jumps a turnstile? You know, they're actually, they're making emergency doors that have delayed opening so that people can't let people in, like, which is, is just the most massive fucked up safety hazard I've ever heard of. Yeah, I feel like the words emergency and delayed, you don't usually want to have those in the same phrase, right? No, no, you don't. But, like, New York City has decided for some reason that crime number one is people riding a mass transit system that should be free anyway without paying for it. Grumble, grumble, grumble. So, anyway, sorry, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the subway system a lot in this episode because there's a lot about the subway system in this issue. I'm eager to hear what you have to say. You know it so much better than I do. Uh, I have I have fairly strong feelings about about um, the the relative budget priority of the subway system. Hmm, intriguing. So Wolverine is also the one who IDs the terrorists based on Marrow's description of some guys in berets. They are apparently a group called Ultimatum, led by a dude named Flag Smasher. If these sound familiar to you. It may be because you have seen the recent Falcon and Winter Soldier show in which modified versions of these figured heavily. I also want to point out that Ultimatum, because this is the Marvel Universe and they love their acronyms, is an acronym for Underground Liberated Totally Integrated Mobile Army to Unite Mankind. Oh, they are totally integrated. Totally. 
They are a group dedicated to world unification by de- destroying nationalism, which has some potential for interesting stories. Maybe some of them exist out there. I have never read them, but I've also only encountered these guys in context of the X-Men. I mean, I definitely remember in the Falcon and Winter Soldier show how, like, the equivalent of Flag Smasher, I don't remember the actress's name, but she was great. Um, Like, she was making some really, really good points to the point where they had to have her just, like, start killing a bunch of people to make her not almost as almost more sympathetic than the main characters. You see that a lot. Like, there will be villains, and they're really compelling, and they're making good points. And you can almost see the writers or producers or whoever being like, oh, shit, I think the audience is going to sympathize with these villains too much. Let's just have them, like, off some innocent people. Sigh. Uh, that's a note about Flag Smasher. Um, apparently, he became this villain because his dad worked at the UN and was killed in, uh, like, a stampede protest thing outside the Lefarian embassy. And so he's like, hmm, daddy wanted to unite the world. I think the reason it didn't work was because he didn't kill enough people. Well, no, he decided that it didn't work because there were too many countries. <laughs> too many countries. Please remove six of them. So into the subways, they all go um, after Marrow teases Storm a bit about the whole claustrophobia thing, because Marrow, as we mentioned, is a jerk. Storm makes her call. They're going to split up. One team's going to go onto the subways themselves, sort of disguised as civilians, to investigate. The other team is going to go into the tunnels to look for the bomb. And Marrow is going to be coordinating the two teams' movements. Which really surprises Marrow to be trusted with this. Fortunately, Marrow comes prepared. She has a bunch of radios that she stole off some subway maintenance workers. And Storm and Gambit both attempt to be righteous about this, but Marrow will have none of it. Give me a break. I'm going to get lectured on taking things that aren't mine by a pickpocket and a member of the Thieves Guild. She's never been to New Orleans, so she doesn't know that it's pronounced Thieves. She is, however, absolutely right in this case. I love that Storm and Gamma just look sort of sheepish at that. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. So they, they go on and they use the radios. So let's follow the team in the tunnels first. That's Marrow, Wolverine, Shadowcat, and Nightcrawler. And fortunately for them, Marrow knows this territory well, and she knows all the cool shortcuts. She knows how to borrow an old garbage sweeper train, and so forth. And the team, already split up, splits up some more. So Wolverine and Nightcrawler are going to head to the two-line. Shadowcat and Marrow are going to head to the five-line. So Wolverine and Nightcrawler first come across Ultimatum just as the radio goes off. Um, Team Subways is also having trouble up above. And after a fight, uh, Wolverine and Nightcrawler retreat onto the seven-line, but it's a line that has trains running on it, um, so they immediately almost get run over. In fact, it's also the line specifically that Colossus and Rogue are on. They've been attacked um, by Ultimatum on what they describe as the Brooklyn-bound 7, which gave me pause because at least in 2024, the 7 line doesn't run to Brooklyn. You know, many things are different in the Marvel Universe. Um, There are superheroes, there are supervillains, there's the Phoenix Force, there's Galactus, and the 7 line runs in a slightly different location. Fair enough. So, ironically, um, you, you asked in the notes how accurate the subway stuff is in general in this issue. And the answer is, I know that one because that's a line that runs through Queens. And the subway lines I'm most familiar with are the Queens lines because that's where I live. So, like, seven, the seven and the six are the numbered lines that I know with any, any degree of, of flexibility because they are ones that I transfer to to get to other places. 
And other than that, I pretty much just run on, on lettered lines. Like I know the E really well and I know the F really well and I know the G really well because it goes to my workplace. Um, but like otherwise, eh, it's, well, it's a large system, lots of trains, they go places. So what differentiates a lettered line from a numbered line? Okay, this is actually really interesting. The subway didn't used to be one system. It was multiple largely private owned, privately owned systems. So when they were all integrated together, different ones of them had used different systems of disambiguation for their lines. Okay, gotcha. And they just sort of kept the name. So is it just letters and numbers? Are there also like, I don't know, colors or emotions, like other ways of labeling? It is just letters and numbers. If you're thinking of colors, I think you are thinking of the DC Metro. Or the Portland train line. Indeed. So Kitty and Marrow are going off together, and everyone's a little surprised that Kitty volunteers to go with Marrow because Marrow clearly seems to hate Kitty. But they have a really interesting conversation because, as Kitty points out, Marrow is not the first sort of new girl on the X-Men. Like, Kitty herself was first. She was the first young female newcomer to the team. And then there was Jubilee after her. And... She figures Marrow's the third, but, like, why is Marrow having such a hard time getting into what the X-Men stand for? Like, she wants to see if she can help Marrow understand. So this is interesting, because this, along with Marrow's narration, really sets Marrow up explicitly as the heir to that role. And the role isn't just the new kid. The role is specifically the audience stand-in. That's a really good point, yeah. I mean, that's often what the newcomer character is. like, And we've seen that in the TV shows. I mean, the old Pride of the X-Men pilot was seeing the X-Men from newcomer Kitty Pride's eyes. Jubilee, of course, was in the 90s series. But yeah, Marrow is very different. And I mean, Marrow points out part of why, in her eyes, it's because she's ugly. It's because she's ugly and can never be accepted. And she's very disdainful of Shadowcat's conventional attractiveness because, again, in Marrow's eyes, that means that Kitty has never had to deal with anything Marrow has. She's had an easy, easy life. And Kitty, who at this point is still not the best at owning privilege, blows up at her and is basically like, I have watched my friends die. I have had a completely shitty time. I have been you know, persecuted by humans. Don't be presumptuous. But I think Marrow has a decent point here. And... I want to loop back to the issue of her as a point of view character and ask what it means and what it changes when the point of view character in X-Men, the the main audience audience um, POV character, isn't human passing. Yeah. So we've talked uh, rather a lot about the whole mutant metaphor thing. And one thing that I think about a lot is sort of who counts as a mutant. And I know we've had different takes on that over the history of the podcast. I remember during the uh, early Trump years, I at least was at a very angry point. It was a little exclusionary. I, I think I, I regret being that way at the time. Be- but like, it's very easy for anybody who's been an outcast in any way, big or small, I think, to feel like a mutant, to feel like you know they're being discriminated against or ignored or whatever because of some way that they're different. And that is both the strength and the fundamental limitation of the mutant metaphor is that anyone can theoretically see themselves in it, but you can't use it effectively and say we have this as a stand-in for X or Y or Z marginalized group. Like, it's not a substitute for actual representation. 
Exactly, yeah. And that's why it's been so great seeing more intersectionality. I just read a great old article um, by Stephanie Burt uh, talking about um, Marjorie Liu's run and how that like focuses so heavily on intersectionality and so effectively. Um, good stuff. I mean, really, all of uh, Stephanie's stuff is, is great. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as far as what it means for Marrow to be that entry point character, that POV character, that audience surrogate character, I mean... I think in some ways that can be a very satisfying thing to just see yourself as to see not just the benefits of, oh, I was ignored by mainstream society, but now I'm on this team and everything is great. But also just to really see mirrored like the trauma that many of us experience in in different ways for being different. Not just like, you know, that being our origin story, but that being something that we carry with us, like, say, bone sticking out of our face. Yeah. And having that complicated relationship with with the concept of passing, in Marrow's case, with the concept of attractiveness, that also kind of forces the other X-Men to reckon with it to some extent. Yeah. Uh, that said, Kitty also does make a good point that, like, not that Marrow should just get over it, but that all she's doing right now is wallowing in it specifically in a way that hurts the people around her that are trying to help her. So they continue conversing, but they're also, you know, adventuring. So at one point they have to jump between trains and... Kitty asks if Marrow's ever seen the movie Ghost where that happens, then I love Marrow's response. Romances make me want to kill myself. Oh, Marrow, romances are fun. I just watched Moonstruck for the first time. It was really good. Cher and Nicolas Cage, they're both excellent, and Nicolas Cage is, like, super weird. Nicolas Cage as a romantic hero is always fun. Very much so, yeah. No, he's just bizarre. Although my go-to for that, for him as as a romance protagonist, is, of course, Raising Arizona. One of one of the best movies he's ever been in, yes. So that brings us to Team Subways, which is Storm, Colossus, Gambit, and Rogue. They're wearing civilian clothes, which is smart, because they're trying to just, like, pretend to be normal patrons on the subway. They're also confused by the existence of Metro Cards, which is weird, because Metro Cards were introduced in 1993. They're also at a station that doesn't take tokens, which is likewise weird, because tokens weren't fully phased out until 2003. So the MetroCard thing I have a, a no-price explanation for. Um, this is a, a great issue. I really like it. But there are some misplaced word balloons and typos and stuff. You know, whatever. It happens. Including in that panel. I think it's supposed yes. to be Colossus who is confused because he's been overseas for a while. And with the sliding Marvel timeline, maybe time just sort of got compressed. Not FF8 style. Just the normal style. Um, in a way that uh, that was implemented while he was Excaliburing. Yeah, that was my first thought, except that Gambit is also confused by their Metro cards. Although I like the idea that Gambit would have likewise been confused by tokens because Gambit has literally never paid for a subway ride. Yeah, yeah, he steals everything whenever possible. Uh, I will say that part leads to a good gag later, so I'll totally let it slide. We'll, we'll get to that. There is some tomfoolery involving teleporting and phasing, and ultimately everyone ends up captured by Ultimatum on the same train, both Team Subway and uh, Team Tunnels. I love these guys. I mean, I guess they're they're horrible people that murder everyone, so I don't love that about them. But I love their look. So they wear these baggy white pants and, like, white masks that cover their entire face blankly. Um, but over that, they wear those berets that we mentioned and also sunglasses and carry guns around. And they just remind me of, like, really militant mimes. Uh, I was going to say, they seem like very violent backup dancers. <laughs> I don't know if that's—no, those those are equally good. Those are two equally good explanations. Now, they fight their way through lots of ultimatum up to the bomb, and the train stops, 
just under the UN, which makes sense given Flag Smasher's deal, except Mero realizes that the train bomb is in fact just a decoy. The real bomb is in the tunnels under Wall Street. Right, because like Flag Smasher, he wants unification and the UN kind of wants that, but Wall Street, no. Flag Smasher wants there to be only one currency in the world, and if he blows up Wall Street, something, something, that will happen. Uh, Also in this big fight, Gambit charges up his Metro card because he's out of playing cards, and it's great. You know, so those expire, you can refill them up to a point, but then they they just stop working. And honestly, if Gambit just collected expired Metro cards, he would probably be pretty well off for a while as far as things to blow up. Remy, if you're listening, you can have that one for free. Which I guess is fine, because you would just steal it otherwise. So, Kitty and Mero head down to Wall Street. They find the bomb, or rather, they head down to the, the subway tunnels under Wall Street. And they find the bomb, which is guarded by Flag Smasher. And I was not aware until I read this issue of what Flag Smasher looks like in, in the comics. To which the answer is, Space Ghost. He looks like Space Ghost. I have a giant brain that is able to reduce any complex machine into a simple yes or no answer. Like most members of our generation, we grew up on Space Ghost coast to coast, which means that this resemblance makes Flag Smasher now an inherently hilarious character. I'll spank you smartly with my spank ray. Also married to Bjork. Canonically married to Bjork, kind of. Well, Space Ghost, not Flag Smasher. I don't know, it's the Marvel Universe. The Seven Line runs somewhere else. Maybe Flax Smasher's married to Bjork. So it's a really quick fight because despite looking like Space Ghost, Flag Smasher's just kind of like a dude in a cape. Um, and Kitty kicks the crap out of him. Telling him, Man, you are bush league, Flaggy. I took care of tougher Joes than you when I was 13. Anyway, congrats on being a part of the shortest X-Men fight ever, dude. But the bomb is is still there, and Flag Smasher does the I'll never tell, it's impossible to defuse, it's going to go off no matter what now thing that villains do. And Kitty's plan is to phase it way underground to go off, which is basically a suicide mission. So Marrow knocks her out, pins Flag Smasher to the bomb via a bone spike, and leaves him to either defuse it or not, figuring any human who is this short-sighted and self-righteous will absolutely have the self-preservation instinct necessary to defuse the bomb and will absolutely have been lying about it being impossible to defuse and when kitty wakes up she's horrified she's like no he's a true believer he would totally sacrifice himself for this dream of world unification but marrow's right marrow's totally right and this is something that marrow's brought up periodically throughout this issue especially to kitty that marrow feels like she herself understands humanity better because she has watched them from afar she's not biased by any sort of affection for them or connection with them so she can see just how shallow and selfish they all really are unfortunately she has given the one of them who can phase and therefore get them away from oncoming trains a fairly severe head injury So Kitty passes out again as a train is coming. Whoops. But it's okay because it's the X-Men and they are able to stop in time. And everything's okay. And Marrow is uh, a little bit more ponderous than she usually is. And the closing narration really comes full circle with the opening. She still looks beautiful. Her chestnut hair. Those hazel eyes. Me? There's new bone growing out of my cheek through my nose. In the end, I guess we all get what we deserve. This is not an issue that really impacts larger continuity much at all, unless you really care about the first time Marrow met Flag Smasher. But it's an 
excellent, excellent Marrow character piece. Yeah, I keep saying we're going to stop covering X-Men Unlimited, and then they're keeping issues like this. So uh, we'll see, I guess. We will stop covering X-Men Unlimited except when it's good. Or relevant. So far, that's been most of the time. Well, there you go. And now for something completely different. And that brings us to X-Men slash Doctor Doom, but not like that. Annual 1998 Doom Quest. Oh man, Doom Quest, they're a great band, I assume. Oh, I, I was figuring that it was it was it was some kind of mashup video game. Oh, that too. Doom Quest 64. Anybody remember Quest 64? Yeah. Anyway, this issue is written by Jorge Gonzalez, penciled by Aaron Lepresti, inked by Artie Bear and Jaime Mendoza, and colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft's Dave Lanfear. Um, Jorge Gonzalez. Gonzalez wrote Uncanny X-Men Annual 97. That was the one where the X-Men and Havoc's Brotherhood of Mutants clashed over how to fight humanity's last stand in that African nation that Gene Nation was living in. It was a, it was a whole thing. There were big robots. Um, it was all right. This is good. This is fun yeah i think it's more fun than good i have no objection to that so the cover is dr doom looking menacing but like with this gatefold spread of images from the x-men's history behind him and little panels from the silver age to the then present year of 1999 and that's kind of what we're going to get here it's just uh, a trip through all these important x-men events kind of like ed pisker's grand design but um weirdly more loyal to canon than that ends up being well, yeah, because Grand Design exists within its own continuity. Totally, yeah. So this issue is not exactly new to us because, Jay, you've covered it before. That's right. I discussed this issue with Douglas Wolk on his Voice of Latveria podcast several years ago. We'll stick a link to that into in the um, show's visual companion if you just ha- cannot get enough of, of discussions about this issue that involve me. It's a fun issue. It was a fun podcast. Well, have our specialties. I've covered Sauron's first appearance like three times on three different shows. It's wonderful. Follow your weird, weird heart. I'm going to follow a weird, weird pterodactyl man. And his weird, weird jorts. So we do indeed start at the beginning of, well, really modern Marvel continuity. At the beginning of the Silver Age in the nation of Latveria, Dr. Doom's country that he runs— And in that country, Dr. Doom is commanding his robed and beardy seer to show him visions of the future for, like, power reasons. Yes, he wants wants to see big, big cataclysmic events. And so what he gets is Onslaught. Yeah, you know, that time that Professor X and Magneto kind of sort of merged-ish into a great big monster that ended up killing but not really most of the heroes of the Marvel Universe? But Doom doesn't know that. All Doom knows is that this guy is a big deal and he dresses kind of like Magneto. And this is early Silver Age Doom. Like, Doom becomes a very complex, layered, at many times sympathetic character. At this point, he was the guy that sent the Fantastic Four back in time to steal Blackbeard's treasure. He's a fun man. He is a fun man. He's very much that, like, simplistic Silver Age bad guy, and it's great. And so he wants this power for himself and demands that the seer make it happen. So as, as, as Miles alluded to, Doom has the capacity to travel in time himself. So the, the role of the seer in this story is a little nebulous, as is Doom's frustration with the seer, given again that he owns a time machine. Bah, I grow tired of being teased by your glimpses into the future. 
What good are these visions if I cannot use them to attain my goals in the here and now? No good, and that's why they have to jump on the time platform and head through a highlights reel of X-Men stories. Yeah, and Doom recognizes Onslaught's armor, like you said, Jay, as being similar to Magneto's. And hey, he remembers Magneto. That was that guy that took over the nation of Santo Marco like a few weeks before, which places this portion of the story very shortly after 1964's X-Men number four, the first appearance of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I really appreciate that um, as Doom is reminiscing about this fact, he gestures up at his giant array of television monitors where he can look at a bunch of scenes from that story, which always raises the question, like, who took those pictures? A lot of them are close-ups of a fight. He got the comic. Maybe he just got the comic, yeah. Yeah, it would have been much cheaper back then. So, um, yeah, time for some time travel. Uh, the seer is not so sure about this whole plan. Pardon my insolence, master, but is such a course of action wise? Why would it not be? Am I not Victor Von Doom, absolute monarch of Latveria? My will is law. With my superior intellect, anything is possible. Latveria is a really small country, and... I love how he uses his absolute monarchy as proof of his, like, omniscience and omnipotence. It's like, I do mayor of Sheboygan, Michigan! Is this, like, one of those things where you can buy, you know, a single brick of a castle somewhere in the UK online? I have no idea. Probably. So, uh, on to Doom's cloaked and thus invisible time platform they go. Yeah, he's, he's got one of those. Um, it first appeared, in fact, in that issue where he forced the FF to go back in time to steal Blackbeard's treasure, which, by the way, resulted in the Thing uh, disguising himself as a pirate and actually being Blackbeard. It turns out in the Marvel Universe, there was no independent Blackbeard. Um, it wasn't just Taika Waititi looking sexy. Like, the historical Blackbeard is, in fact, the Thing in a fake beard. Because of the Comics Code Authority, we cannot know whether the Thing version of Blackbeard also engaged in a wild threesome with Jack Rackham and Charles Vane, but we can hope. I I think so, yeah. So, first stop is just a little bit before the present day of where Doom's coming from, into 1963's X-Men number one. That was the first time Magneto revealed himself to the world. And by the way, we're going to be doing a lot of little call-outs to specific issues, and I want to give a shout-out to Mesmerizer at UncannyXmen.net for doing all this research uh, so that we didn't have to. Thanks, Mesmerizer. Now, Doom remembers that the same blue and yellow clad teenagers who are fighting Magneto here at Cape Citadel were fighting him in San Marco and wonders if perhaps this rivalry may persist. Perhaps indeed, and they are off, since this scene has no hint to Onslaught's origins, to 1969's X-Men number 63. This was when the X-Men fought Magneto at his base in the Savage Land, the time that Magneto had a rocket pack since his powers were all messed up and he was injured. Um... Why, why do we have to justify him having a rocket pack? He's Magneto. He can have a rocket pack if he wants. Well, right, but I feel like I want to tell the complete story of Magneto. I don't want to uh, oversimplify this complex man. Um, and what, what impresses Doom about this fight, which is great, is that Magneto fakes his own death at the end. 
as the base explodes. Yeah, villainous game recognizes villainous game. So at this point, one might ask, is this issue just basically an excuse to revisit important parts of X-Men history, but also have Doom yelling about things in the third person? I mean, well, yes, yes, it is. And that's 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 good. That's a feature, not a not a bug. So our third stop is 1978's X-Men number 113, when the all-new, all-different X-Men fought Magneto in Magneto's Antarctic volcano base. It is really fun to see all these different incarnations of the X-Men with all their different eras of costumes all in quick succession. Like, that's half the pleasure of this book. We'll throw some of that into the Visual Companion. It's great. Doom feels otherwise. Hmm. This habit of arriving in the midst of volatile circumstances is getting tiresome. Like, dude, you're you're going through the highlights reel of a superhero comic. What were you expecting? Yeah, are you thinking you're just going to catch them all on the couch, like, binging Monty Python or something? Well, he's specifically following Magneto. So I assume he's going to—he's he's imagining that he'll see Magneto doing magnet stuff. I don't know. What's Magneto do for fun? Magnet stuff. But one thing that's different about this trip through time is that their cloaked time platform is seen specifically by Phoenix, because this was the era when Gene was Phoenix. Well, okay, technically when Gene was replaced by Phoenix, but you get the idea. And she confronts Doom, demanding that he turn over his tech so that they can use it to escape from the erupting volcano. Doom thinks, you know, this is rad, she's powerful, you know. I, I appreciate this this degree of, of forthrightness, but unfortunately, between Jean's attack, the volcano going off, and the seer getting hit by psychic feedback, the time platform is knocked off course, and they spiral into the future to 1980s, Uncanny X-Men number 142, which is Days of Future Past. Fun little note, this was the first issue of X-Men to have Uncanny before its title. Uh, yeah, of course they go to Days of Future Past. Everybody loves Days of Future Past. Everything is destroyed and there are Sentinels everywhere and it's all terrible. And Doom immediately takes out a Sentinel and it's very cute. But he needs to get supplies to fix his time platform. And to do so, he basically happens to take the exact same route as the older versions of Storm, Wolverine, and Colossus breaking into the Sentinel base, which they do over the course of this issue. Uh, fun little continuity note, this right here is where Dr. Doom learns of Storm's claustrophobia, which later in his own timeline, he will use against Storm in Uncanny X-Men 147. That is, that is a delightful little retcon. Like, I love retcons like that. Right, it's like, oh, that one random detail in a story does in fact have its own origin, and it's right here. But everything goes the same way it did in Days of Future Past. I mean, the heroes all dramatically die fighting the Sentinels. And Doom learns a couple things. First, that he respects the X-Men. And second, that, hey, army of robots. Hey, I could use one of those. Which means this is also the secret origin of the Doombots. This issue is so stupid and I love it so much. And it is so exactly aware of what it is. I, it's, it's just a delight. It's great! So Doom gets back with his, you know, flanges and springs and whatevers that he's scavenged from, I don't know, robots. And the seer has been doing some research of his own, and he has realized while Doom was gone that Magneto's not the only person connected to Onslaught. There's also some kind of connection to this random dude named Charles Xavier who has some sort of connection to the X-Men. No one knows what, but you know, he's just, just some random Columbia pro professor. 
Uh, Doom, being a reasonable employer in some ways, uh, trusts the expertise of his employees, at least as long as the employees are appropriately groveling. And so onto the time platform they go, but this time back in time some more. I mean, still ahead of Doom's own time, but back in time from Days of Future Past. You know, it's a time travel story. So they head to 1975's X-Men number 95. That was the one where Thunderbird died punching Count Nefaria's airplane to death and where Xavier stayed psychically connected to Thunderbird the entire time. Now, there are two things that are important about this particular stop. First, Doom wonders, you know, how will this trauma affect Xavier over time, which we, of course, now know. Second, Doom has no fucking clue what telepathy is. What transpires here, Seer? Who is he speaking to? There is no one else in the room but us! Has the professor lost control of his faculties? Stop six is 1980's X-Men number 136. This is Xavier's psychically and emotionally devastating telepathic duel with Dark Phoenix shortly after she manifested as such. And man, I gotta say, even just jumping into the middle of this scene without the surrounding context and with an artist other than John Byrne, like... The Dark Phoenix saga just holds up so well. Even just a little bit of it in complete isolation by a different creative team still fucking gives me chills. Um, and, and Doom wonders, you know, is this what drove Xavier over the edge to become Onslaught? Or is there something, you know, else? He also recognizes Phoenix, and he still thinks that she's pretty rad, so he wants to hang out and see what happened. But the seer points out that the last time that happened, it went really poorly. Oh, man. Can you imagine X-Men 137 with all of its gravitas and all of its brilliance and all of its heart-wrenching impact, but with color commentary from Silver Age Doctor Doom? That would be amazing and terrible. Yeah, it, it, it would be like Rift Track's Grave of the Fireflies. Oh, God! Oh, God! That should not exist! And it doesn't, for good reason. Yes. Anyway, uh, the seventh stop is 1982's Uncanny X-Men 167. That was where Professor X had been taken over by a brood queen and was dying, and Cyclops insisted on trying to save Xavier despite the seeming impossibility of it all. And speaking of scenes that totally work out of context, this is Cyclops just restating the purpose of the X-Men, of their dream, the driven dedication and good heart of Scott Summers. Like, oh, it all works so well. It's so much fun revisiting all these little classic moments. And then we jump a few years ahead to 1985's Uncanny X-Men number 200. This is the trial of Magneto. And here the dying Xavier is begging the reformed Magneto to take over the school after he's gone. Again, we find Xavier at the brink of death. Confound it all! He is of no use to me in such a weak and feeble state. Surely this is some sort of foul jest. Are these two not bitter adversaries? Bah! Sentimental drivel, and I do not believe it for a second. And this convinces Doom that Xavier just sucks too much to be Onslaught, so he decides he's going to focus back on Magneto. I love how Doom doesn't really have any kind of grand plan except just to look at stuff that seems cool and powerful. Yeah, yeah. So this time we go to the present day when the comic was published of 1999, after Magneto's recent mysterious return. And Doom at this point just straight up uncloaks and confronts Magneto to demand to know what the deal is with Onslaught. So what's the deal with Onslaught? 
and they they fight as as villains do. And Magneto says, "So just so you know, Onslaught's defeat required the sacrifice of all of Earth's heroes and you." And Doom is shocked and furious and doesn't believe this at all. But thankfully, during this fight, the Seer telepathically probes Magneto to get, like, details. And they run away through time to their 10th stop, 1993's X-Men number 25. That was the Fatal Attractions issue where Professor X shut off Magneto's mind after Magneto pulled all the adamantium out of Wolverine's skeleton. And Doom has his first really intense close-up encounter with the Phoenix retcon, because he knows Dark Phoenix died, and he cannot for the life of him figure out how the hell Jean Grey is there. Uh, Listen, Vic, it's a long story. Uh, I recommend listening to episode 53 of a podcast called Jan Miles Explain the X-Men. They'll tell you all about it. And this, of course, is when Onslaught was created, when... Xavier shut down Magneto's mind, and a little weird spiky hate goblin uh, traversed its way into Xavier's psyche, creating Onslaught in one of the stupidest justifications in X-Men history. What I really enjoy is that the hate goblin just looks very, very silly. Like, that, we call it a hate goblin for a reason. It's not like some screaming, tortured soul. Like, it's a little pointy man with a big pointy nose who you can just imagine going, <laughs> like Salacious B. Crumb or something. Salacious Crumb has a middle initial? Salacious B. Crumb, yes. Yes, he does. I don't huh. know what the B stands for. I bet some Star Wars fans would know. Bernard. Salacious Bernard Crumb, associate of Jabba T. Hutt. So, Doom goes, oh, I can, I can hijack this hate goblin i can take control of this and then i will get control of onslaught right so he uses his absorption transducer to just try to vacuum it up like he's fucking luigi trying to vacuum up a ghost and as this happens the seer takes takes dr doom and the seer himself to the astral plane as they see what's going on and they vacuum it up, but the hate goblin is way too huge and powerful and spooky looking and cackling like salacious B. Crumb, I assume, for Doom's vacuum cleaner device to work. And the immense explodey feedback all of this of all of this sends them rocketing back through time, coincidentally, to Doom's original location and time in his castle in the early 60s, the dawn of the Silver Age. But Doom is optimistic. He figures he knows a lot about the future. Um, he kills the seer so that he's the only one who knows this. And he will use this information singularly badly during the actual Onslaught event. Um, he will try to absorb Onslaught's energy at the end of the climactic battle, but it won't work and he'll just get dragged into the big hero sacrifice. Exactly like Magneto said. Yeah, it's great. So uh, there we go. We've been to the past. We've been to the future. And we've tried to suck up Onslaught with a vacuum. And Doom has learned nothing. You, on the other hand, are wise and know that not everyone knows everything, and so you have asked questions. Devin Tui emailed us to ask, What level of healing factor do you prefer for Wolverine? So I like my Wolverine nearly impossible to kill via conventional means, but very far from functionally invulnerable, and I think he should require time to heal. He should, among other things, be able to lose fights by attrition, which is not really a thing that's possible when his healing factor is as amped up as it 
ultimately became. So I guess I'm I early Wolverine, I, I suppose. That makes sense, yeah. You know, I might actually go even earlier. Like, because if you remember way back in the day, uh, Wolverine would mention sometimes that, like, if he was, say, shot in the head or something like that, or if his organs were too damaged, he would die. Or, like, he could drown because his bones were really heavy and he would have trouble getting to the surface. So... For me, I like that better. And I know, you know, the reveal that he had an adamantium skeleton would complicate that, because if he got shot in the head, it would probably just bounce off, unless it went through his eye, like in X-Men Origins Wolverine. It doesn't go through his eye. It's a special adamantium bullet. Oh, was that it? Yeah, it's it's so it's so much stupider than, than you even think. I gotta rewatch that wonderful movie. So many explosions. Uh... But yeah, I mean, I like the idea of Logan being way tougher than a normal human, of him being able to recover from things a lot faster and get back in the fight, but also at him, you know, being able to be killed by pretty severe damage. That way he can still be a super ultra badass, which, I mean, let's be real, that's part of what we love about Wolverine, it's fun, but there's an actual element of risk. There are stakes. See, I'm fine with him not necessarily being killable as long as severe damage takes him off the scene for long enough. Like, if it's, you know, I can handle having my heart shredded, but I'm gonna be functionally comatose for like two years while it rebuilds, fine, that's cool. He's uh, had a lot of relationships go badly. His heart has been shredded many times, Jay. I'm still really annoyed that no one has ever had Wolverine go get a tattoo to impress a one-night stand. (laughs) right because it would just heal away yeah i think that would be extremely funny extremely clever and extremely in character for very specific eras of wolverine yeah his old like rascally adventure years that we see in some of those stories like the vampire one oh he's definitely done that in madripoor at some point oh yeah man i love wolverine madripoor stories or possibly in rio yeah yeah one of the two probably both of the two asimov fangirl asks on tumblr have any of the past Corbeau winners asked for a physical version of the award? Uh, yeah, so um, if you're not familiar, of course, we have our end-of-year Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence in Excellence, which we give to, like, our favorite stuff from what we covered that year and also what came out in the present of that year. And the deal with those is that if you are someone who wins one, um, specifically a creator who wins one, then you and you want a physical Corbeau Award, you can ask us and we'll make you one, probably with paste up and a lot of glitter glue. Uh, Yes, yes. In the past, they have been um, that characteristic sailor cap that Dr. Corbeau wears, but uh, shiny, shiny gold. Um, Once I glued a bunch of comics to a piece of wood. You know, so the point is, they're awesome. Uh, So yeah, the uh, offer stands. Um, Any creators who are listening to this, if you have won a Corbeau Award in the past, or if you win one in the future, hit us up and we'll, we'll send you something stupid and great. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, standing in for Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com and hear him DJ live at our 10th birthday party on April 13th. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and information on said 10th birthday party, again, coming April 13th. Our show, and uh, I guess that party, actually, are 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com, and also check out the RSVP link up there. And please take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Jay will be out exploring the fabled Canadas. Watch out for Weapon X.
But Miles will be joined in the virtual studio by Eisner Award-winning funny book slinger Katie Pride to talk mutants in the direct market. <laughs> 